Hello and welcome once again to Radio Moorpork, the podcast where we work through Terry Pratchett's Disc World series, one book at a time, and this week we're discussing moving pictures. I'm Callum. And I'm Steve. That he is. Mm-hmm. He's not quite, I don't know where that, where that enthusiasm, whether that enthusiasm is warranted. I, I'm sorry. I've an used, affirmation of your I've identity. used all my enthusiasm. The rest of it's going to be a drone. I, <laughs> okay. I can promise you. If you came here looking for droning, drawling uh, vocabulary, you've come to the right place. Some, some latent narcissism there that you use up all your enthusiasm saying your name and then you find some enthusiasm <laughs> to talk about someone else's Moving book. Moving pictures is a good book. <laughs> so Which is true. It is, it is. But uh, before we get into the discussion of it, we're just going to um, refresh your memory with a brief plot summary. The death of the last adherent of a forgotten religion on a deserted beach sees the magic of moving pictures find its way into the minds of Ang Morpork's alchemists. Setting up their fledgling film industry in Hollywood, the clicks they produce become a cultural sensation, attracting huge audiences and a cavalcade of would-be stars just waiting for their big break. The latter group includes Trolls, Rock, Mori, Ruby and Detritus, Gaspo the Wonder Dog, Tida, Ginger Whittle the Reluctant Milkmaid and Victor Tuckleben the even more reluctant student wizard. After some initial hiccups Ginger and Victor soon establish themselves as the leading lights of the cliques while Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler rises to prominence behind the scenes. All is not what it seems though. Sinister forces lurk at the edge of reality, determined to break their way into the world via Hollywood. With a little bit of help from Gaspode, Victor appears to have foiled their plans when he prevents a sleepwalking ginger from opening an ancient cinema beneath the hill. But it turns out he has done just the opposite. Ginger sleepwalking was all that was keeping the dungeon dimensions at bay, and during the premiere of Blown Away, the biggest click ever produced, they break into reality in the form of giant spectres of the film stars. With some help from the Wizards of Unseen University, now marshalled by their new Arch-Chancellor Mustrum Ridcully, and Ginger sustaining the magic of Hollywood away from the screen, Victor is able to defeat the creature, putting an end to its threat, but also to the entire moving picture industry. Okay, so Steve, when when was the last time you had read this before before you read it for the podcast? Like, did, Is this oh. when you had reread often, or only the once, or...? No, this um, see the vast majority of uh, the older Discworld books. I, I read the entire series twice, and the second time would have been early college. So we were talking about who? Oh, we would be talking about Almost nearly ten, 10 years. years ago. Wow, <laughs> so quite a long time. So yeah, it's been quite some time, and I do remember this being a particularly good book. I was looking forward to it a lot. Um, so I was surprised when I read it that it's a really good book. <laughs> like, yeah. It's even better than I remember. So. Um, yeah, Moving Pictures was an absolute favourite of mine. What about you, Colin? When yeah. was the last time you read it? Um, well, I, I think I, I was saying to you before, I had a bias for a long time, a very stupid, irrational bias, against the, the Discworld books that featured like standalone protagonists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, I always just had it in my head that, like, oh, there must be a reason he didn't come back to these guys, and mm-hmm. these ones are obviously blessed on the guards or the witches or Rincewind. Um, which is funny now that like at the moment Pyramids is top of our uh, list yeah. so far and it's probably one of my uh, favorite ones in all series and likewise this one very very like, good yeah piece. yeah I read I mean I read it for the first time well, a good while ago now but it was like after having read a good chunk of the rest of the books and kind of arriving at it and I'm like oh well I'll give it a try you know mm-hmm. I've worked through all the others and yeah it's, it's so so good there's certainly a lot more to talk about here Don um, Don we had an Eric uh, one thing the big thing that jumps out at me is 
you know how um, in the Matrix they have a picture, or they have not a picture, they have someone reading a book by Jean Baudrillard uh, who had the whole like simulacra, simulacrum yeah. representation uh, outpacing reality. And Baudrillard was quoted as being very derisive of the Matrix, of saying, mm-hmm. well, like, you know, that film really isn't anything about what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this book is about what he's talking it's about. It's funny that you say that because one of my points here is to like to discuss the post-modernity of the entire thing and the entire uh, fakeness of uh, everything in this book, which yeah. is, which is, and like, he references it so many times. Um, it's it's just uh it's it's so blatant and it's it's funny because I find this book when I was thinking about it, you can argue against me on this one if you think I'm wrong but I feel like it's almost emblematic of the approach he takes to fantasy as a whole mm-hmm. in that he does things that on the surface kind of coincide with the notions of fantasy and fantasy fiction but at the heart of it it's just it's it's grounded in realism but you know on the surface you know if you were to say to someone who oh can you suggest a good book to me he says oh try the Terry Pratchett book it's fantasy series and you can almost hear their minds shutting down if, yeah, they, if yeah. they have no interest in fantasy series. but it's not quite because you know it, it, it just has the airs of fantasy it's not really fantasy these books you know it's they're it's hard to call <laughs> yeah it would be it would be very easy to just see this as like oh it's a fantasy land that has a cinema because mm-hmm. of like imps you know um, but he just used that as such a great jumping off point for like style kind of style over substance like you know signifiers over reality um like i kind of see it's interesting uh reaper man is our next one and that's the first one that introduces the auditors of reality mm. and i kind of see the auditors of reality and the things from the dungeon dimensions as like either end of a spectrum exactly. where the auditors of reality are all about pure function and no form like they just want ordered life uh, like what was I think Death says they just want the universe to be a bunch of rocks moving very slowly yeah exactly um, yeah. whereas the things from the dungeon dimensions are theater and spectrum they have no form um, and they're just like all chaos. kind of ideas and chaos yeah and so they're leaking through on this like um, this whole movement that values style over substance that kind of exchanges reality for a sort of for a representation for a a glamorized version of reality that mm. people kind of willingly take like there's so many great examples like when um Victor talks about the the shop fronts in in Hollywood being like really amazing looking and eye catching and then you walk behind and they're just and really just bare and you have that later with the when the wizards are trying to sneak into the cinema at the end and like Morpork and even though that's not like one of the Hollywood buildings that's just been built there's still the same idea of out front it's really uh, glamorous and gorgeous and it's really dank behind because they know no one's going to pay attention mm. once their eyes are on the big shiny thing up front. And you know one thing, actually just a quick point on that, one thing that I found incredibly amusing was their whole um, their uh, stunt with the fake fake beards yeah, and inverted yeah. commas that the fact that they're they're putting it's 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 got so many layers that you know like they're insinuating what is real is actually fake but uh, they want it to be fake so that they'll think that I'm sorry it, I'm just going to go in circles here but you know what I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a refresher I even can't remember this bit it's, it's when the, the the wizards are trying to sneak out to go to see um, Blown Away and they they don't want to be seen as wizards and because they all have beards one of them suggests using fake beards mm-hmm. 
so they just put a bit of string uh, like at the from their beards to their ears so it looked like their own real beards or fake, fake beards, beards you know uh, really straddling the lines between reality and non-reality and yeah and, and then it works but mm. then it works too well because mm. when they try and convince the, the girl at the ticket counter they're wizards she and, won't believe them because they're fake beards and that's the great thing that ties in so well that the theme that they're doing the idea of the fakeness being more real than reality yeah. itself the hyper reality that like yeah. actually I, I'm not sure is it Baudrillard who speaks about hyper reality yeah, 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 I think it was yeah others. and of course the best example I think in that is when they construct the fake Ankh Morpork yeah. which you know they say it looks uh, you know even though that it doesn't look like Ankh-Morpork Pork at all, it looks more like Ankh-Morpork Pork than Ankh-Morpork Pork ever did, which is actually very, very similar, I think, to... I think... I don't think it's Baudrillard. It might be someone else who discusses how films in... or uh, cities in films look far more like the cities actually do, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that was- so if you were to go to the likes of New York you'd look at it and say, this doesn't look like New York because you have the idea of mm-hmm. New York in your head from films like Manhattan or, uh, you know, uh, a- any like mo- uh, modern film that takes place in New York. Which there's so many because you have that image of New York in your head. It, ha- it has all the emblematic, uh, you know, uh, tourist spots and mm-hmm. um, uh, sites. And when you actually see it and realize it's actually a living, breathing place, it doesn't feel real, which is bizarre yeah yeah they take a kind of concentrated condensed version of the the city that like Distilled cuts out city, the bits yeah. they don't really want to show yet mm. still exactly um and it, it, will, it would kind of be interesting if you saw i mean it, it ends up culminating in when they're shown blown away the one with the fake gang Park. that's mm. where the whole edifice comes crumbling down but had like had you had the idea of like tourists going to Ankh Park earlier from like Sudopolis, whose only experience of Ankh Park had been seeing it in the clicks? Yeah, and be like, oh, you know, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that though. It's it's great. And actually, just another very small point, um, just another small example actually that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed is actually uh, Gaspot himself. Oh, the first time anyone encounters him, he always says "woof" as opposed to barking. Yeah, which is kind of like, yeah, this is what a dog says. They don't actually say that. And just like the whole double take that everybody has when they're dealing with this is like, yeah, it's a fakeness that there's no real problem what you're saying, but he's saying it, you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then the way, he, like, he's always passed over for Laddie, even though he can, mm. you know, he's a super intelligent talking dog, but they just see, like, no, Laddie looks much more like a heroic Yeah, he, dog. he's got the look yeah. and he does what they expect, like, a very smart dog to do. <laughs> Yeah. It, uh, I think Gaspard says, like, oh, sure, he can jump over fences, but I go around the fences. Isn't that smarter and a better use of my time? <laughs> it's like, makes sense. <laughs> There's also the great bit when, when Victor is briefly sacked from working in the cliques and he tries to get a job as a horse handler. Mm. And your man, the, the, horse, the more successful, experienced horse handler, tells him it's about offering people a horse handling experience. Yeah. And he goes into the detail of like the kind of, you know, you've got to be cheeky, but not too cheeky and deferential. And, and, and he has this like, ooh, he switches very quickly from the way he speaks to Victor and then the way he speaks to the people whose yeah, horses yeah, yeah, he's yeah. taking. And like, it, it's, it's so ridiculous to think, oh, you want a horse handling experience? Like, if you, you know, are going to get your like car cleaned or something and, and you're like no I haven't given me a car cleaning experience <laughs> you've just made my car a lot less dirty exactly um, yeah, yeah. but it's it just chimes perfectly with uh, with the rest of this book and the way even the old postmodern uh, kind of a- alienation of it all is, is kind of too with the part where Victor talks about how time works in, in clicks and yeah how, like, he, that's right it takes yeah. some ages to get around to the idea that you're filming you know one bit 
uh, like the end at the start and so on and it's just mm. chopped up and reordered and I think there's one or two parts where him or Ginger finish up a scene and they're like oh uh, you know what what next and they're like oh no we're done well, what about the end oh we shot that yesterday you know mm-hmm. um, and, and likewise the way he says he never bothers to try and understand the script mm. which I feel is kind of like a joking dig at uh, like um, I suppose Hollywood heartthrob actors and blockbusters in general because later you have Veterinary saying how like compared to any like the bassist theater actor Victor Ginger or nothing really special but yes they you know they famous uh, for being famous yeah is the yeah. words that he uses which is um, yeah. but but that kind of like sense of alienation of like your job and this huge thing uh, entertainment industry people love being kind of something that doesn't really work the way reality should like time doesn't work properly there mm-hmm. and you're not really sure of the plot and you're just kind of swept along by it and kind of confused but have no choice but to go with it <laughs> exactly yeah and actually it's interesting you say that bit about um, veterinary being uh, you know a little confused about how they um, how they, ju- they just seem to be famous for being famous and it's uh, it, it draws some very interesting um, it, it makes some very interesting points about celebrity culture as a whole you know uh, the whole idea that uh, celebrity itself not not even um, the roles they play are performances but their celebrity persona is a performance and mm-hmm. they they draw attention to that beautifully obviously oh, when yeah. uh, Ginger says I can't go out there they're expecting you know the the girl who's like in all the films they're not expecting me Ginger who just came from a town you've never heard of mm-hmm. this is well what if it itself is a performance and you can see I think the comparison that I made to that and I think they referenced it earlier is Marilyn Monroe yeah. who is all about you know the big sweeping you know uh, winks to the camera even when she was being interviewed and stuff so you never really got, a, and this is true for a lot of celebrities, uh, is that you never really see the real them. It's always, yeah. you know, their character. Their, and, like, their character being their celebrity persona as opposed to their film persona. It's it's just an interesting way to view it. So, um, yeah. And, and it's, I think it's more relevant now, actually, than it even was back when this book was written, back in 1990, I think it was, because now you have the internet and it kind of emphasizes how constantly, constantly people are on alert to make sure that they portray mm-hmm. this persona and not their actual persona because you've always, you have the likes of Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts and online media. Yeah, you know, mediating and constructing your own identity. That's actually, just, uh, I hadn't thought of it like that, but it is so true. I was about to talk about the bit at the end where, um, you know, all the crowd believes Victor's definitely going to save them because they've mm-hmm. seen it. In our own lives, we occasionally get that like similar sense of jarringness where, say, someone you experience mainly through social media like say maybe you met once at a party and then they mm-hmm. add you on Facebook or you you know you follow them on Twitter and so on and then you meet them again later and it seems really odd to kind of like uh, try and see how this real person fits in with the social mediated image you've got of them and sometimes exactly, it, yeah. it seems kind of jarring and oh I didn't I didn't expect them to do that or you know mm-hmm. um, absolutely yeah yeah I, I also I just love the the idea at the end that like Victor is going around on a horse essentially made by people's imaginations yeah. through the place, but that he can't he says he knows he's going to make it in the nick of time, but he has to keep running. He has to, come, yeah. he has to mean, comply to the rules. Yeah, it's a great dramatic conceit as well, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it fits in so perfectly um, with the, just the whole uh, team of this kind of artificial reality and it coming with its own associations mm-hmm. and rules that people have built up from Seeing it, and that's interesting actually because that's somewhat links into uh, 
you know what we were saying about Angmorpork being a distilled image of the real Angmorpork, mm-hmm. the hyper-real one. And it kind of works for characters as well because when he says you have to play by the rules, if you think about it, everybody, every celebrity that we think of now, they do have a persona that isn't really them, but it does feed off their actual persona. Yeah. It is, again, just like an emblematic, emblazoned version. I think it was, um, maybe it was Cary Grant. It could, I could be wrong on this, but he was very big on... Um, I think it was a hunting thing. Um, you know, I, I that could be completely wrong, so I, I, I wouldn't quote myself on that. But um, would be a bad. Actually, a very good example of that is uh, you know Chris Pratt, who's yeah. a big star right now, and he is very big on uh, the whole you know um, charity thing. And you know, I I love Chris Pratt a lot, but the thing is, uh, fair enough, he is a very generous man because he is going to all these hospitals as people's favorite characters, and he's doing good. Mm-hmm. But he is also, you know, making sure the camera is there to catch him doing all that, yeah. you know? So it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a strange one. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're capturing people's personalities, but, you know, just really pumping it up to 11, kind of, you know, yeah. in every single situation. Yeah, getting a very... Um, and, and then there's that, that trade-off, too, between, like, when you talk about someone with the cameras present when they're doing something good, on the one hand, you think it's uh, self-interest, but on the other hand, their argument might be, well, like, if the cameras are there, then, you know, pe- more, there's more media attention, maybe other people will donate to this cause, and, yeah, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of, when you live in the eye of the camera the whole time, there's, like, a lot of uh, trade-offs that have to be made, and ultimately, you kind of got to consign yourself to no one really like knowing you um yeah or or very few people knowing you but like millions of people think thinking they know you and having possibly very strong feelings over this uh mediated concentrated distilled image they've got of you exactly and it's funny because um the ending of moving pictures where the entire crowd is saying oh we know he'll do it you know um Mm -hmm. he's going to jump on a horse now go on to the sunset and they just look at him expectantly and you look at it and you think that's just ridiculous but if you think about it the way audiences react to celebrities sometimes is like you, you hear stories of people who just 100% believe in people mm-hmm. like there's people who fully believe that the things that happen on the likes of Fair City and EastEnders are actually happening and they write letters to the cast saying I can't believe you said this is such and such a person yeah. what's wrong with you, yeah, you know? well, there's the famous thing when it was in, was in Carnation's treatment like Deirdre Barlow was framed in uh, jail like there was a, a kind of newspaper campaign like free mm. the Weatherfield one exactly um, yeah. and it was kind of tongue in cheek but in every way it was framed similarly to how you'd fr- like do an actual campaign to you know clear someone's name mm-hmm. um, it's like you know you know in your head that it is fake but there is like as uh, Victor says when they're watching the thing in that brief moment you do believe what you're watching is real you know if you think about it for a second mm-hmm. no it's not but when you're watching it it is real to you and it's just like that emphasized 100% when it comes to celebrity in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, question, question for you on this one, actually, because, I mean, putting aside the post-modernity thing, because I know we're going to come back to this a lot yeah. because it's, it's so inherent to the book itself. Would you see the moving pictures as a whole as more of an homage or a general criticism of cinema? Um, it, it's sort of both. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, in that kind of, like Ginger's speech about how like it's this opportunity for people to express themselves and find something they really love in life and do it is really wonderful and a bit where she talks about the tragedy of like all the blacksmiths who'd be amazing 
you know uh, guitar players but never saw a guitar or whatever exactly, yeah. it is like like that's really great and you, you really do get a sense of you know um he he's Pratchett seems kind of like fond or admiring of the like the sort of magic of this industry that takes so many people to to work in it and they're all producing something they mm. love it but you know there's also huge kind of uh, a, a lot of digs at the commercialism with Dibbler like at that running joke yeah. trying to get the messages about Hargis House of Ribs <laughs> and yeah uh, like about just stardom in general when you have stuff like um, like Rock talking about whether he should get a new nose and yeah yeah, yeah. like it's it doesn't really I yeah when you say like uh, there's a bit of both I don't even think it is a case of I, I do think that Terry Pratchett has a lot of love for it but he sees like all the flaws in it as well it is just more an observation of the way cinema is as opposed to I love this and I'm going to honour it this way or no the industry is wrought with a you know uh, scandal so yeah. I mean both are true you know so he just kind of observes and distills it in really funny ways one bit that I really really enjoyed was um the, the way uh, Dibbler is constantly trying to, you know, up the ante and give it, like, action mm-hmm. and, like, you know, no substance. It's just all about what the people want. And one of the best moments, I think, is at the very end when the giant ginger uh, monster creature is climbing the tower. Yeah. And Dibbler's just looking at it and thinking, it needs something. And then it's kind of the equivalent of a literary pause. And then you just see... And then suddenly two wizards burst out of the sky <laughs> yeah. on a broomstick. And, like, it's... It's so out of nowhere. It like it's it's like so many films you'd see. It's like oh yeah, it just needs that special something, and you know when you're watching. Just for example, this is a bad. No, no, I think this is a good example. But if people haven't seen it, I don't know if you saw the new King Kong film. No, um, there, but I, I can say how much I love that this ends with a giant woman carrying a small. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 it, it's somewhat linked, but there's a moment in that for no reason whatsoever Tom Hiddleston puts on a gas I think no I think there is gas there he puts on a gas mask whips out a samurai sword and starts attacking all these monsters and then halfway through and it's all in slow motion and then halfway through he rips off the gas mask for some reason but you know you imagine he's still in the and it's all spectacle it doesn't yeah. make any sense and it's great partially because it's so ridiculous but it is great and that's kind of how I saw that moment in that mm-hmm. book you know it's ridiculous it sort of makes sense in relation to the story that yes it makes sense that Ridicoli and the Bursar are attacking this thing that's attacking the university but um, it's it's just spectacle and he he manages to make it really he manages to make it sound as dumb as it is while being as entertaining as it should be yeah. in that moment yeah. which is beautiful I think though it's sort of I mean it it, it feels like a funny to say this because we began by talking about the uh, Postmodernity and hyper reality and so on. Um, so to us, it seems like we took that as a really central part of the book. Mm-hmm. But it would have been very easy to write, like as, as kind of alluded to at the start, just like fantasy cinema without that, and just fill it full of wisecracks about like you know, like puns on film titles and mm-hmm. uh, jokes about the film industry, which are, are in here. But I feel like if you didn't have the whole hyper reality aspect. It would just be this really tin pastiche yeah. that you know and to would certain, be kind of amusing, but so, sort of like Eric in a way, you know. It yeah, just, you, you'd put it down and probably wouldn't think much of it again. Whereas the like the hyper reality style over substance thing underpinning it all mm. makes all that stuff. It's just like it's the icing on the cake and helps to you know um, helps the story along rather than expecting that to support the story. And yeah, and you're, and it is actually relatively subtle because I remember the first uh, 
you know, we, we both studied postmodernity in college, so, mm-hmm. you know, we're very much aware of it now. But the first time I read it, I hadn't, and so it didn't really click with me. Ha, <laughs> click. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it. and it was kind of thin, a really enjoyable, like, uh, story, but, like, the story felt thin. I just remember enjoying it. I think this is why I enjoyed it so much more the second time, because mm-hmm. it had that extra level of depth to it, which um, was really, really good. Um, instantly, like, quick little thing for you that... Um, I don't know if this is a flaw or just me being dumber when I was younger, <laughs> but uh, Victor, the main character, there's a bit at the start where they discuss his um, stature. Yeah. And they, I think the way it's described in the book is uh, a lot of people would expect Victor to be quite overweight because uh, he's, so, he's lazy. so lazy, but the way he saw it was that was just extra weight to carry around, so he made sure he was always in peak condition, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Funnily enough, the first time I read this book, I kind of seemed to gloss over that, so I just read, Victor was overweight. <laughs> so I remember it was always confusing to me that how did he get all these main roles when yeah. he was supposed to be a big fat guy? <laughs> but um, it's interesting as well that he is one of the very, very, very few people in the entire Discworld series who is described as basically an attractive man. Yeah. You know, like because if you think about it, that any other character, even ones who you know are described in any way uh, optimistically there's always some kind of flaw like if you look at uh, Carrot for example yeah. uh, he is described just as like you know he has plain good looks you know mm-hmm. but it's like he also has kind of a, a simple look which is not the same as being dumb you know everyone has something about yeah. their positive na- nature to bring them back down yeah. to reality and I find it really interesting that this guy he needs him to be basically a hunk so mm-hmm. that he can be the face of moving pictures but he builds up the backstories. He's only a hunk because it's so much effort to be anything other than a hunk, you know? <laughs> and even then he mitigates it with the line about his like, little tin moustache about how yeah. oh, in a certain light to look dashing and in another light it's just like a coffee stain. Yeah. <laughs> and even the likes of Ginger, I like. it's odd that, um, again, it's what the narrative needs her to be. She's supposed mm-hmm. to be this long, languid, like a beautiful, uh, wonderful woman. But I don't think, whenever Victor describes her, he never really describes her as like, being beautiful and like it says that he's in love with her but it ne- it's very rarely attributed to looks like there's one example I think where he says uh, in the right light she could be beautiful but then he goes on to say she's covered in masses of makeup and a ridiculous yeah, wig you yeah. know actually yeah and then I think it's only at the end he mentions that's the first time he saw her or without a wig or without loads of Hollywood mm. makeup on yeah um, and how he, he, he thinks she's uh, quite attractive despite the lack of all those kind of like glamorizing uh um, that actually if, if, if you don't mind me going yeah. that actually brings me up to another point that I found quite interesting and this applies to the uh, cinema industry but also as a whole uh, sexism in the book the fact that um, well for one thing uh, Ginger's role in particular jumped out at me because you know she's uh, constantly fighting for all these roles and you know she's struggling the whole time. even when Victor first comes in he literally mm-hmm. arrives gets a job like that Whereas Ginger had to fight for ages just to be an extra, and like when Victor finally, when she stars next to Victor, it's like, how did you get a job so fast? I've been at this for like three weeks, and I've yeah. only just managed to get in. And um, also, I thought that the Ruby Detritus subplot kind it's of really had a, lovely. it had it, it is really lovely, but it's interesting that um, it kind of highlights uh, you know the way. For me, it kind of it kind of reminded me of uh, old James Bond movies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, uh, do you remember when he wants to romance her? And the first thing he does is like 
give her a big slap and then show her a rock and if she sees that and yeah. when her eyes focuses again then like that'd be the one for her and the reason I think of James Bond is because I saw a YouTube video recently of every time James Bond slaps or hits a girl and there's an alarming amount of it at the <laughs> early ones but he's still viewed as this like dashing figure yeah. You know, so it's interesting that Detroit's uh, intentions are completely honourable, but utterly, utterly backward. So it's kind of like classic cinema romance, you know, yeah. from a misogynistic point of view. I, I think there, there's a certain element of, uh, how would you put it, like, it's like um, cultural homogenization going on in, in moving pictures, mm. where uh, you have it with the joke when... Um, they're trying to find another lead, male lead for Blown Away, mm-hmm. and they try and cast Rock. And I, oh, I think they end up doing it's to some line later that implies he, he, he does get the role. But initially, Ginger's arguing about how stupid it would look for her to be going out with a troll. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you know, kind of uh, putting his foot down and saying, like, oh, I can't believe you're going to deny me this leading role. Mm. Um, and with Ruby, you have the idea that, like, she's kind of attracted to detritus, but. Her, uh, she's taking on all these um, feminine tropes and kind of uh, romantic conventions that are from other cultures that are mm-hmm. from like human romance, right? Like Detroit is as clumsy as it is. It's like that's what they do in the troll world, mm-hmm. and it's she. She's just like, oh no, you've got to bring me some ugra and like you yeah. know <laughs> some vegetation, and she doesn't even quite know. And it's sort of defensive in the same way that like moving pictures features. Uh, like trolls and dwarves humans but it ultimately like even though you have the line about Ginger saying about the trolls get paid more because there's less of them it Mm. still kind of uh, prizes the human experience and human culture in the disc world you know Mm. and in a similar sense you've got this balancing act where where the the trolls are kind of moving from Ankh Morpork or to Ankh Morpork you have the, the joke too about wanting to want, wanting to want to eat the dog and eat the humans when they rescue them. Yeah. That they're modernizing and they're kind of forming like a hybrid culture out of their culture and the, the culture of the, the place they've moved to, which is, you know, probably like a good and a necessary thing. But there's also this sense of like the potential for them to throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. and just completely abandon their own culture in favor of aping human culture. Exactly. Because yeah. human like a really traditional very stereotypical human romance and human adventure in the like in the cliques that uh, Dibbler and the rest of the make is what's being foregrounded and what's mm-hmm. being prized mm-hmm. so you have Ruby just thinking like oh this is what a girl should want even though she's kind of confused about why she'd want vegetation yeah. or you know and in the end she's just like oh you know what feck it like I'm you know I'm I, I, I like him and uh, <laughs> and that's enough it's interesting because uh this, uh, this actually ties in well with a lot of uh, subplots in other books, but the idea of hyper-real, passionate romances, that, and they, that can never, you can never reach those expectations. And you see, we saw that before in Morph, actually, mm-hmm. with uh, Isabel reading all the, um, all the novels, or actually, no, people's uh, lives yeah, before, yeah. like the romantic tales. And she kind of wants that with Mort, but it's just nothing like that. Mm-hmm. It can't possibly... And, like, she's really... Uh, entranced by the idea of Mort liking the princess and trying to save her but uh, when he realize when she realizes um that she likes him she's almost angry at it because it's less romantic yeah <laughs> which is really interesting um i the way i found uh ruby's role in it was almost like as you said she's confused about what she wants and that um 
you know, she knows she wants this. She wants, uh, you know, more rights as not rights as what? Well, I don't know if it's rights if you describe it that way. But anyway, the way I viewed it is kind of like emerging feminism, like finding its feet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of the first time they kind of emerge and say, no, we want things to be different. But um, because it's so built in, this is the way it's always been. There's confusion there, you know? So uh, I don't know. That, that That's sort of the way I read it. But And I found it a little bit troubling the way at the... I mean, it makes sense in this world that it kind of reverts back to the yeah. way it was. But the fact that it does, I'm like... I don't know, maybe... There's, there, there definitely sounds like there's hope there because Ruby is happy with the way things go and uh, she definitely seems to be the one in control in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, well, like, I mean, she never, to the best of my memory, she never actually shows up on page again. True, true. She's always in the background of, I mean, Detritus, I think Pratchett himself called him the most personally successful character in the entire mm-hmm. Discworld in that he goes from being, like, I think he's a splatter in Colour of Magic to, like, he's a sergeant in the, in the watch and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like a minor... A pretty important minor character in that series, but um, like I think in Men at Arms it said like he got he gets the job in the watch because of her. Like she says, you've got to get a proper job. You can't be like just someone who beats up people in pubs. Oh yeah, you I know. I remember that. Um, actually, and there's yeah. still that traditional sense there of her expecting like you've got to be a proper man and be the breadwinner. You know, like mm. presumably she takes care of her at their home. Um, but there's still like there's it feels like more of an equal power balance, and she has more agency that she can say. No, I think this is better for you. This is what you should do. And he says, okay, this is what I'll do. Rather than, you know, him ruling the roost as the man in the house. Yeah, interesting. And I think in that sense, this is actually very, very progressive because Terry Pratchett is always... He does... Uh, the world of this world, time seems to move faster than it does in this world, you know, because we go from, like, typical fantasy to essentially emailing in, like, some of the more modern books, you know? Yeah, so uh, things move... Well, trying to work out, like, the, the timeline. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's... It's a fool's errand. Exactly. <laughs> but time does move faster. It's like, you know, it is a pastiche of modern culture, mm-hmm. but it is grounded in, like, a kind of uh, medieval fantasy yeah, yeah. land. So in that sense, it's interesting that... Because it's grounded in that, it still manages to make a bit of progress, but it can't go too far because... Well, it, and it does sometimes, but it's always the exception rather than the rule, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it's well, interesting that way, that it does manage to show some progress without, you know, totally toppling the whole world's um, uh, stereotypes, I guess, is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. The conventions. Like, the, 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 yeah, yeah, sorry, the conventions of, uh, you know men-women relationships yeah. as they were in that time well certainly with Ginger like there's a lot of stuff about you know you you just try and look as rescued as possible okay? you <laughs> yeah. know like, it's, like the, the cliques are presenting a very um, you know uh, ultra traditional ultra narrow view of romance mm. and relationships that it never really gets to the bottom of but I think that's you know that's more I suppose just a, a criticism of the shallowness of cinema and the kind of as you were saying the distance between like how real world relationships actually work and this kind of idealized simplified version of them you see represented in you know in in media um Mm. i think it's quite telling actually that um because it it is grounded in silent slash classic cinema they never really progress into i mean this was written in what i think it was the late 80s so uh, oh the 90s yeah and there was there's a lot of mentions of classic film or well you can see that they um he pays homage to a lot of films, the likes of uh, Gone with the Wind, obviously, mm-hmm. and King Kong, and uh, I think there was a whole Snow White, of, like there's a bit of a yeah, scene. But um, they never, they there are other classics. I think he very, very sparingly 
makes references to more later films. I think Jaws at one stage he has something. He talks yeah, about sharks. Yeah, well, I think when when Dibbler is talking about blown away initially, and Victor says there needs to be more. Dibbler starts throwing ideas around, and one of them is a big shark, and they look at him and he's like, "Oh yeah, I don't know where that came from." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he all the all the references he does to later films, he does quite sparingly. The focus is mm-hmm. very, very much on early silent cinema, and I think that allows him to get away with a lot of the. Um, anti-progressive uh, nature of things you know and the way that he treats uh, specifically as you say the way he treats gingers is just look as rescued as possible yeah well like, I don't think like I think I don't think it's a thing of getting away but like he's not oh, no, no, I'm endorsing not saying, it like like mm, what I mean is like he's um, that's the way it was at yeah, that time so yeah, he doesn't but, uh, he's that. sort of satirizing me up but it's I, I suppose get away in the sense of that like it never it's not a book about addressing that you know what I mean it's mm. not like a book about kind of um, I suppose uh the impact of the feminist movement on filmmaking or something like no, that. No, you're absolutely right, yeah. It's just a side thing. And it's actually, it's really well done because he just draws attention to it and points out how ridiculous it was back then as it, like, as it, as it is now. Yeah. Um, in turn, actually, uh, and again, this isn't the focus, but I also have in brackets and racism there. <laughs> just in relation. Now, I didn't think there was as much of this in it as... Uh, you know, the likes of the postmodernity, hyper-real or sexism. But I was just thinking of it in terms of that one conversation that uh, Saul is having with um, the dwarfs, the trolls and Ginger. And it, it's yeah. when uh, she's saying, I don't want to kiss a troll. You know, you can't just... Uh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly, see if I can find the actual uh, point. Let's see. No, I, I know, yeah, I know the bit you mean where... Um she says she'll look ridiculous and he's yeah, talking about how uh, trolls, you know, trolls only get the, the parts of just like beating people up and, and uh, so on. I think it's, I feel like that bit is, I mean, it, it's kind of making a parallel of like, yeah, that as a troll, he's very typecast. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also like the comedy in that bit is the fact that you can recognize a parallel with the real world where you kind of, someone finds themselves... Uh, walking headlong into a, a conversation where um, you know they're saying like accidentally being construed as a as a racist or maybe some of their like latent kind of soft racism is being exposed and they're suddenly like oh no that's that's not me it's kind of like like the Father Ted episode mm-hmm. with the Chinese people but I think the comedy the, the comedy is because it so obviously doesn't like you know actually parallel like the idea of when when Ginger's like I'm not going to like it's ridiculous that I'd be um, like in love with a troll. A troll's literally made out of rock. Like they have a kind of different <laughs> physics. Whereas like the, like rock, the troll is paralleling it as if he is say you know like a, like a black actor or an Asian yeah. actor or something. Mm-hmm. You know like like he's saying oh like what's so ridiculous about this troll? <laughs> and like that, I think the, the comedy there is that like Saul is kind of tiptoeing around it as if he's like conducting a discussion like that in real life when really you should just be able to say well of course it's ridiculous you're you know you're made out of rocks like if you two try to have sex you crush her you know, like this, this doesn't work at all but but it's it's kind of treated by all the characters maybe with the exception of ginger as like it's this you know like much more uh nebulous difficult thorny real life racial issue you know when it's actually just some simple silly fantasy stuff 
what, what did you think about Victor and, G- and Ginger in general? I mean, as I was saying earlier, they're two characters that never show up again, and this biased me against the book beforehand, but not afterwards, I think. In all honesty, um, it makes sense that they don't show up at all here, because there isn't an awful lot to their character. Like, I do really like the way Victor is set up as someone who goes to great lengths to do as little mm-hmm. as possible. I find that really interesting. But his character him itself isn't all that interesting. But that plays quite well into this story because he is all about the appearance as opposed to any actual depth. Yeah. Ginger herself, uh, slightly more, slightly more depth, but again similar. Like all she really is is a girl who wants to make it. That's really all her motivation is. And uh, the only other real uh, development she has is not wanting people to die when she discovers that she might be letting something out of the cave mm-hmm. uh, near the start. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot to their characters, but that happens to work quite well in this. Um, it was weird, actually, when I was reading it, I kind of found that Gaspos could have originally been written as part of Victor's personality, but yeah. he tried, He decided to separate the two because they kind of they clash too much. Because if you think about it, there's very few moments where you, you, could, you could actually take Gaspos out and any time he does anything really specific... It could always just have been Victor, um, you know, mm-hmm. working away. But uh, I just think it was a lot more interesting. It, it, it read a lot better to separate the two and to give yeah. that element of, uh, you know... That, that's that's an interesting observation because I've heard someone say that, like, Gaspode is a fun character, but he doesn't really fit in here. It's just like Pratchett had this idea and thought, he, you know, he, mm. he really had to use it. And, like, I can't remember... He shows back up and... Men arms and I think in the fifth elephant as well. Mm. I don't know how he can talk then. Like in this, he can talk because of Hollywood. If I remember and rightly, I think he it it changes slightly his backstory. I think it says that he was just hanging around the garbage bins behind uh, Unseen University and some magic league set. It's oh, something like like the Amazing Morris. Yeah, it's yeah. it's something. I think it's something quite generic like that. That you know, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing because you know each book serves itself more than the universe. Yeah, you know. Um, so that's fine it's just it's it's odd that um, it finishes in this book implying that he goes back to being normal, a normal yeah. dog but yeah. then clearly you know uh, our friend Terry just had st- second thoughts because he is such a great yeah. character you know but he does feel like an odd fit here compared to say like like, uh, like at first he kind of annoyed me because I hate that sort of um, like that smug smart alecky character where he's mm. just being real to Victor like you know I know better follow me kid and you're just like, oh, like, you're just a twerp. Like, what do you, like, you know, like, if, if your ability is just to be a little more, like, slightly more perceptive and a lot more sarcastic and cynical than mm. everyone else, that doesn't make you, like, better or cleverer. Than, but then the bits where he starts having this identity crisis about yeah, where he doesn't really say. want to be a, like, a dog, he wants to be a wolf, but he knows he can't really be a wolf, mm. just made him much more endearing and relatable. But those bits fit in much better when Anua comes into it and you have the horror being cut between a human and a wolf in mm. Men at Arms and the subsequent watch books. And particularly as the, the other talking animals that are implied to have kind of gained sentience as part of Hollywood thing to become like, uh, you know, their destiny is to become someone like Rin Tin Tin or Tom and Jerry yeah. and so on or like all the kind of Warner Brothers and Disney animals they don't really serve a purpose because they avoid going into Hollywood getting into the mm. clinks for the whole mm. thing like there are some decent jokes about the you know them being like um, 
Uh, they give a little bit of info about what's going on in the cave, but you know that really could have been served by yeah, anybody. Yeah. But it's it, it's interesting that you did need to have an outsider to provide that information. You couldn't have someone who was invested in Hollywood because they would have been swept up with the magic of Hollywood. They're also swept up with the mag- magic of Hollywood, but in a different way. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it seems like Victor probably could have done that because he he seems a little more um, uh, distant from the whole Hollywood thing than ever. Like more of an outsider. Mm-hmm. Like even even the way he goes about getting the getting the job initially by kind of bypassing the cues. Everyone else is just. Mm-hmm. Queuing up in, he seems to have a bit more perceptiveness. But actually, just, but yeah. So I mean, I like I like Gaspard. And I, I said he kind of he won me over after initially. I decided he was sort of annoying. Yeah. But it it does seem like he's kind of a, like an odd fit, even though like um, I hope you put it, like I I probably miss him if he was gone from this book. But it would still be a good book anyway. Like it's yeah, not exactly a vital part of it. He's he's more he makes more sense uh, thematically and plot wise in the the watch books he pops up in. True. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, he does. Ser- I think do think he serves a good purpose in here, though. He does emphasize, you know, the whole um, hyper reality of things, the identity crisis. Again, it's um, it's interesting that one. Um, it's. I, f- I feel like that. Like I think that's probably the best arc in the entire book is Gaspo's like realization that, you know, he he at the start he seems to really hate humans. He wants to manipulate them, but then he has this really. I want to be a pet kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, he really hates that, but he just doesn't want to demean himself at the same time. Something that I think is summed up absolutely beautifully when Victor throws the stick and Gaspar has just enough time <laughs> yeah, to say, yeah. you bastard, before running after it, <laughs> which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, um, it does seem odd that uh, reading it now in our kind of um, pupper proliferate, proliferated, mm, doggo-dominated age... Interesting, uh, yeah. that like he's so reviled like I mean obviously I don't want to be naive there are kind of dogs that are horribly mistreated mm. all over the world but like by and large in the, the kind of like mainstream of western society it's like ah oh, dogs lovely like you know there, <laughs> there's no such thing as a kind of you know an ugly dog or whatever until it does something like actually attack someone yeah. so it feels uh, it, it does read a little strangely when you're like reading this idea of this dog who's like so manky they all you know won't kind of so much as look at him and hate to have him around you know you'd mm. think there'd be just more people who'd just be dog people yeah, and would be, yeah. oh brilliant you know, dog, <laughs> regardless of, of what he looked like well this is like the Terry Pratchett's whole thing is that he brings ugliness everywhere he just mm-hmm. kind of has a tent he emphasizes ugliness and everything but he just always adds a tad of glamour to it so this is I think this is where uh, he when he describes Gaspard he does it really well because he does make him the most horrific dog like more horrific that well not horrific but like a really ugly unlikable dog more or less that you know, you you're right. You never would get that in a real society, but it works in this universe where every, I mean, you never get a city like Angmorport yeah, either. Yeah. Like oh. you can get terrible, terrible cities, but they'd either be ignored. They wouldn't be like glamorized the way Angmorport yeah. is. You know, glamoured, glamoured and grime. If that, if I don't know, London is pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty <laughs> bad. Know, this is the thing, like because like whenever you talk about very few people talk with like oh Angmorpork the place to be it's always like Angmorpork it's awful but there's a kind of a wistfulness in it yeah. London a lot of people talk about it. it's like it's wonderful and it's only when they get there they're like oh well it's not so great <laughs> apologies to any of our uh, London uh, listeners <laughs> just not, I'm just personally not a fan of London it's a very gritty place and very expensive <laughs> oh, oh, oh you're, you're 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 from the sticks unlike me it's like a, like a kind of hard streetwise urban guy mm. um 
Like, did you have a similar thing about Dublin, where before you came, it seemed like kind of alluring and glamorous because it's the big city? Oh, absolutely. And then you get here, and it's just like absolutely. Yeah. I, I I never appreciated uh, living in the country until I came to Dublin <laughs> <laughs> because like everything here is you know a grimier than it looks. But I used to love coming here. It was like this. I remember it was my dream for the longest time to move to Dublin, and it's still I do still lo- love living in Dublin. But it's certainly it was a lot greener on the other side, you know, yeah. that kind of way. Yeah. Um, I've one more point that I want to make to you something that jumped out at me and it's purely because of what has been going on in the White House recently is the relationship between the media and state sorry well, one moment I mean I, I hope this like podcast will last in posterity so people could be listening to this in 50, 60, 160 years time right. so we should probably clarify to, you know, give some context for those listeners. Um, oh, yeah, the current president is Jimmy Carter. <laughs> We're recording this podcast in 1974. Um, actually, no, it, that would be Gerald Ford. I'm recording this podcast in 1976. Um, no, you're talking about Donald Trump. So of course, our, our, our old buddy Donald Trump. But I find it really interesting that, you know, um, in this book, they have to move all the way out to Hollywood. I mean, of course, Hollywood draws people in, mm-hmm. but the excuse they give for going out there is like, first of all, the light isn't good enough in Night Morpork, but also they need to get away from wizards yeah. because um, they said they don't like us, like you know, meddling in magic mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I kind of viewed magic almost as like politics in a way, or like uh, I don't know, just journalism or something like that. I'm not really certain, but it's um, the fact that wizards kind of take a vested interest in um, this when it actually comes to Angmore Pork and like they feel like they shouldn't but they like can't help themselves Mm -hmm. they're drawn to it and I found myself inevitably comparing it to uh, whenever Donald Trump starts giving out about Saturday Night Live when he sees portrayals of himself and he just gets furious and says no no that's not the way it is at all and uh, it's just it it, um, it reminded me more of I, I don't know if this was similar when Hollywood was eventually being was you know eventually being was first being set up whether mm-hmm. they had similar concerns of we want to strike it new but it sort of reminded me of like the idea of you periodically hear uh, people in Silicon Valley wanted to be its own independent state mm-hmm. and they just see any kind of government regulation as like completely impinging on their creative and technological freedom and that they shouldn't be you know regulated or told what to do in any way. Um, and, and how to, like, you know, Silicon Valley is another uh, part of the world where, like, there isn't much to it other than that whole industry. It's not like they mm. went to a major metropolitan center and set up there. Um, so, like, I, I feel it's sort of like that. Like, it's that sense of kind of building up your own city so you're kind of geographically mm. away from the center of, in this case, magical regulation and you can get away with, uh, mm. with stuff there. Uh, I, I love the whole depiction of Hollywood, though. Like, it's a really good there's a really strong sense of place in it, you know, for someone that only crops up for the one book, just for the purposes of like creating this, um, this world moving pictures industry. It's, uh, it's just so evocative and you can, uh, it's the book. It's very cinematic Mm -hmm. and you can very, I have a very clear picture of Hollywood when when I'm reading it. Yeah, I get the same as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I did feel like there was definitely like, it was, it was almost as if, um, moving pictures the entire industry was like a rogue industry like you know and that's I, I, I studied silent cinema and I remember the only the equivalent of that would be would just be the likes of um, propaganda mm-hmm. and I don't really think there was can you remember is there anything in the book that kind of relates to propaganda I don't think there is no not really no it's, it's it is just all about uh, 
you know, uh, it, it's actually, oh, actually, one small point I'd like to make is it sort of seems to move backwards in a way because early silence, early and silent cinema didn't really have narrative or structure. Yeah. It was just more about like filming things and that was it. Whereas in this book, it jumps immediately into, we're making short films, yada, yada, yada. But then at the very, very end, uh, there's a bit where, I think it's Saul, he's pointing a camera at the wizards when they're uh, looking at the, the monster on the ground mm. and saying, I call this wizards looking at monster on the ground, which I think evokes uh, the factory workers coming out of the gate, that yeah. very, very old, you know, sound thing, which is just literally just a bit of footage. Although you, you get that a bit at the start before Deborah comes in, Silverfish is presenting things like an interesting display of pottery making, you know, and uh, <laughs> Zibler, or Zibler, Dibbler is the one that uh, invests it with kind of Zork and, yeah. you know, uh, Razzle Dazzle and, and mm. the rest of it. But yeah, it is odd that it's like it reverts to that once the kind of, mm. once Dibbler's dream has come crashing down in the form of the thing from the dungeon I mentioned. Absolutely. They just revert, before Hollywood goes completely, they just revert back to the very kind of boring educational Rinkian films. You can kind of see it as, you know, the way um, they talk about ideas coming. They, he talks, uh, Terry Patch talks a lot about, you know, multiple dimensions. And that actually, I think that gives more credence to references to the real world than, you know, mm-hmm. most of the other books because it really suggests that this is a product from our world yeah. seeping into that world. So I suppose if it did seep into that world, it would make sense that it doesn't have to... I know it is idea, but I just sort of imagine it of, um, yes, this idea, which is coming in around 1930s, just arrived into your world, and it just kind of, instead of going forward, moves backward, because it doesn't make sense for it just to go, well, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but you know what I mean? Like, it, you know, we're dealing, we're breaking the rules of time and space here, so when, like, this idea comes from another dimension, it's not really that bizarre for the time to start moving backwards instead of forwards, yeah. in terms of how cinema progresses. Yeah, I suppose... I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, you know, one kind of cinema parallel that he, he alludes to and never really follows up on that kind of was interesting was when the the big gold man who looks like your Uncle Osbert uh, mm. comes out at the end and sort of yeah. destroys the cinema. And Victor thinks about how this must have happened in a lot of other worlds where like the kind of initial wildness of moving pictures is sort of uh, suppressed or you know like destroyed and the world saved through this big gold figure mm. so there's sort of the idea of like the Oscars you know in the way that they do where like no no creative industry is as regulated around an award show as mm. as film like I mean, like every uh, form of art or form of entertainment has its own awards but the fact that like you have films that we refer to as like Oscar bait and films to come out at a certain time of year because they know there'll be more uh, firmly in like awards um, awards makers heads of the idea of certain like studios willing to take a hit on profits to make a prestige film mm-hmm. that will win a few awards uh, like you don't t- hear of like oh this album they've made is such mercury prize fodder or you know whatever <laughs> like this this like artist has obviously completely changed her style just to go for the Turner Prize or something mm. um, maybe you do but uh, I don't I don't and, yeah. <laughs> no. and you, whereas like film really is based like based around the Oscars that much so there's this kind of idea of like initial wild innovative Hollywood being regulated and uh, repressed to it like but embracing that repression mm. by imposing this sense of artistic hierarchy where you have this main award show and like it will choose what what's the best film like what constitutes yeah, yeah. a good film 
but it never really goes any further than that. Like you just Victor, I think, like ponders on that for a a paragraph, and, yeah. and that's it. Again, uh, I think this is just commentary more than anything mm-hmm. else. I mean, he does hit the nail on the head because the imagery that he provokes with is the idea of. You know, he, I I kind of feel he that he uses the Dungeons Dimensions monster as this wildly creative idea, well outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's like you know making a seven-hour film of like snails going across a windowsill or something bizarre. You know, just a really off-the-wall idea, yeah. and like it's it's sort of conducive of what the audience wants, but it's too much, and it's like no, no, this just it's too, it basically I kind of viewed it as this is an idea that's too off the wall to even you know, uh, conceptualize or, um, well, not conceptualize, what's the word I'm looking for, to uh, process, really, for audiences. And it's so big, it goes off the screen and, like, has a life of its own. Whereas the Oscars themselves, they kind of regulate it. says, okay, these are the rules for films. You need to adhere mm-hmm. them so that the audience can just, you know, accept it and know what to expect when they're dealing with films. So, you know, as you said, it, he doesn't really say anything profound or like earth shattering but it's it's an observation that I think he just I think it's just the metaphors he uses are very very good it's it's a simple observation that he um, manages to satire in a very interesting way but that's mm-hmm. that's all there is to it I think in that one yeah yeah it's there was one where I, I wondered on it a long while after reading it because it is it, one it took me a while to mm. like work out what the actual like other than the the visual gag of having uh, like a a living Oscar you know and like kind of end this wild film I was like what is he making a point there about how it is one flaw I'd say how awards work it is one flaw of this book that the amount of effort that you have to put in to figuring that metaphor out you get very little out of it so no, I don't know. We talked about it there. No, no, we, we did talk about. It, but when you think about it, there's not really much more to it other than what we just said. But I remember, like, yeah, it didn't really register with me before. But when I was reading it this time, I was like, well, what exactly is he trying to say there? I had to sit about it and think about it for a while. Then, like, yeah, that makes sense. But you know, it's not something unless like you actively sat down and tried to figure it out, which I didn't do the first time. I was like, oh yeah, it's like an Oscar. I didn't really think much mm-hmm. more about it then. But when you actually try and sit down and figure it out, it, 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 you know, it might take like a minute or two and you're like, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Not much of a payoff, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, I'm not saying it's, you know, it's awful or anything, but um, I just feel like it's, it's a slight stumble towards the end. It's not a deal breaker by any means, but, you know. Yeah, I it's suppose it's a, it feels like a, more, a bit more of an unrealized idea than, than a, like a, a, the whole hyper-reality thing that is teased out so well and so fully. Uh, the other big thing to discuss about this book is the Wizards and Unseen University. I had forgotten. I think I said in our last episode that um, that this book like introduced the Tamer Unseen University and Reaper Man introduced Rick Cully, but I had forgotten he's in this book. Yeah, and I I like how in in with the benefit of hindsight, you like it seems so strange to see the Borser, uh, not as a frog pill yeah. eating Cloud Cuckoo Lander, but as a kind of put upon number crunching bureaucrat yeah um but you can see him slipping towards insanity it's great yeah yeah the the whole way um likewise uh, i like how we have ponder stevens popping up and i remember that Mm. this gave his like origin of you know how he got into wizardry how he gets victor's exam which is what what your name is I, i love that bit of him thinking it's stupid to be true and adding all the the extra bits of like um Ponder Stevens is what my name is. The answer to the question is Ponder Stevens, which is my name. Underlined. 
But uh, but the the recurring joke towards the end then of him trying to sneak out for a drink and then something mm-hmm. coming in the way. And there's a line about him never going out for another drink again in his life. And it's like, oh, well, he doesn't because he becomes this massive nerd who just works in the, you know, what is it, the uh, experimental magic building. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one thing that I find really ironic is that he he doesn't cheat, but he does sort somewhat unfairly mm-hmm. get his position as a wizard. But he pays for it for the rest of <laughs> yeah. his life because he does not have an easy life after that. Everyone comes to him with the problems because, like, oh, he has hex, and you know mm-hmm. they ask him for all these answers. And really, he's just a poor guy who may not have ever actually made it as a wizard if he had gotten the original test. Yeah. Test. So that's like when you think of it that way, it's like, oh, the poor guy. But. Another quick point just to make on that is um, Ridicoli, as you're saying, it's I, I also forgot that he actually popped up in this one, but it actually somewhat fits the theme quite well because if you remember when they describe him first, he's like, oh yeah, he's just this guy who's you know out in the countryside and uh, you know should be very easy to handle because he talks to trees and animals, yeah, yeah, you know? they have a, a very stereotypical idea of what like this kind of wizard is. Yeah, it's and, like yeah. they have the image in their head and they make assumptions about it, and then when they find out what the real person's like, it's very, very they just. This isn't what I wanted. We wanted the image, you know? So it, it works in yeah. with the themes of the book, which I think is quite nice. I mean, possibly... It's it's because, you know, all these coincidences... I, I always thought of these as coincidences, like when I'm reading it, but I think they occur so often. I don't think they are. I think, you know, uh, Terry Pratchett really knew what he was doing when he was introducing people. I mean, you get the odd times where it seems a little off, but for the most part, he just he's very, very clever about when he introduces people and how... Uh, how they develop so in this case I think it works beautifully yeah I, I love the idea to, to joke too but uh, I think it's like Wendell Poons is the only one who like is still laboring under the misapprehension that he's some like Radagasta Brown type figure who talks to boards and he'll be like talk to him at breakfast and be like ah so you know what, what is what is this like you know plant and, and uh, or, what, is that asparagus would you say and asking different things and just like not copying on to the kind of person he is but um yeah, we even get like the kind of the faculty running off and sort of uh, being these stuffy, uh, like not in touch with the real world, self-important duffers who you know are kind of tempted into the real world and disaster and hilarity ensues. It, it reads kind of oddly that in this one, I think it's the chair of indefinite studies is the really fat one, and the dean is very rule abiding and like he's is the it? most reluctant oh. of them to uh, do it whereas obviously in, in later ones he the becomes the really fat one and also the one who's like most eager like he gets really into music with rocks in yeah and I I in, in fact right in the next book in Reaper Mind he gets really into when, they, when they're going into the um, the shopping centre and you know yes, it's like yes. a kind of quasi Rambo like shoot him <laughs> up and he's you know he's really into that too but um, but I think there's like not only is the depiction of the wizards like really hilarious and fun, but there's a lot to it in terms of moving the disc world forward. Like this is the first book where they feature heavily, where the kind of threat that they help deal with isn't something they've created. You know, mm, like mm. Life Fantastic or Sorcery or even Equal Rights, um, and it's like a. You have that part where Ginger talks about how wizards, like, you know, oh, what do they do, like, in real life, you know, they kind of mm-hmm. never, which is odd, because she talks about, like, how they couldn't make a loaf of bread, and then Victor talks about the energy need to make something real, and the whole irony of it is, Hollywood can't make anything real, yeah. but she isn't real, she doesn't realise that, you know, she's praising one when still, when uh, or and denouncing the other. Just a very quick thing on that, I think one of the lines she uses to describe them is as thomocrats. 
which I just found a really, really, <laughs> a really hilarious term. Again, bring it to like the idea of like Democrats, because when you look at uh, it's like the government, like it's on the surface, it's very hard to see what the government does. It's only when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Very similar to what the wizards do when dealing with like the dungeon dimension creatures and magic itself. You don't really see what it is they do until you really sit down and like you know they spell it out. You know, mm-hmm. so I find that interesting. Yeah, but the idea too of like Reed Cully, his presence uh, ends the what we had seen in Unseen University up until then about the kind of you know. Uh, backstabbing and wizards and you know mm, killing one another yeah, yeah. so he imposes not only stability but also sort of a form of modernity like in the way that yeah. he doesn't put up with a lot of their uh, you know regulations but kind of accommodates the other <laughs> I love the part where he's like saw a monkey walking across the quad bowl as brass <laughs> and first he wants to sack the librarian and like mm. people aren't going around turning into monkeys when I was <laughs> but then he just decides like oh no he's useful okay we'll keep him mm-hmm. but other bits he just he won't put up with any nonsense and then you have when they, the wizards it's explicitly said when they're going out to see the clicks it's that they're leaving the university for the first time in years mm. so there's the idea of Unseen University previously being not only this um, dramatic cloak and dagger hive of you know ambition and like you know sorcery not only that becoming more stable um and more kind of i suppose like silly but also them being less of a law to themselves like they now interact with the real world you know um they come out and they kind of engage with what's going on Mm -hmm. albeit often reluctantly and pompously but they still do it Whereas uh, Unseen University was well, at, it was at the middle of Ankh Morpork the whole time. It was in a lot, a lot of ways, much more self-contained. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, ironically, with that, you have a few callbacks to earlier ones, like um, Victor. Second name is Tugglebend, and one of the wizards in the Life Fantastic who ends up turned up to stone by Trimon is something Tugglebend. Oh, I so didn't he know could that. be the uncle who um, oh, left Victor yeah. this money. That'd yeah, that'd be a very interesting like connection, all right? Yeah, yeah and, and when Wendell Poons talks about um, like partying in his youth, he, he mentions Numbers Richter, who of course has the the wrestlegraph, oh, but he yeah. also mentions uh, I can't. He has a nickname, but something Spode. And that would be you know Greyhold Spode, the really old wizard in the Life yes, Fantastic I who went putting himself in that box to avoid death. <laughs> um, so, like, there, you know, there's a, a... While it's moving on from the Unseen University of those days, it's also referencing that. Uh, it's also, in this, we have probably the most detailed depiction of Unseen University student life you ever have. Yeah, I don't think with, they ever yeah. really go into great detail after this. And I think... I feel like this is something that um, Terry Pratchett felt that needed to be addressed because... It made sense when he was describing it first uh, because, you know, you had to have wizards coming from somewhere. But I don't think he was overly comfortable with um, writing about it as a school. So this was more just kind yeah. of emphasize, okay, yes, just so everyone's clear, this is a school and here is an example of such. Because he doesn't really go back to it again. And mm-hmm. he just quite, he more or less reverts to the way it is before, albeit with wizards being a lot more active. And uh, yeah, it, up to this point, it does kind of feel like the wizards do nothing but lounge around. Yeah, and fight one another. Exactly, yeah. But here they do seem to actually go on adventures and, you know, they even have their weird spin-off series, The Science of the Discworld, yeah. where they, you know, literally investigate other worlds and things. Which and is invent them in some Yeah, ways. of course. <laughs> but yeah, other than 
like the the references made to Rincewind failing and I think just a bit at the end of Life Fantastic when some of the wizards that try and was locked up Rincewind remembers them as his teachers mm. you don't really get the sense of it as a university and more just as like a kind of it's clubhouse. the place where all the, yeah clubhouse yeah yeah um <laughs> Oh, like even when when Simon gives his lectures in equal rights, I think it's like implied he's giving them to a bunch of senior wizards. Like it's not like you know, yeah. it's a yeah, it's just this place where all the wizards hang out. Whereas here, you really get the sense of it as, uh, yeah, as a university. And then even later, when you, I don't think we get as detailed a depiction of student life again as we do here at the start with Victor and Ponder. But even in the later ones, when it's talking about the faculty like it's joking about the fact that they avoid doing any work and you know I think at one point like Rick Cully is outraged to see a student in his university so it's acknowledging <laughs> them kind of avoiding actually doing their job as educators rather than just completely uh, more or less ignoring it as it often did in the first few like I think in a lot of ways this book is the end of the early Discworld you know we have mm. the wizards modernizing we have the first in a long-running uh, trend of like a kind of modern innovation or development like something from our world being mm. imposed on the disc world that we'll later see in soul music in men at arms in um and then much later with the like the moist one liquid ones and the truth of it coming and it's staying like mm, mm, uh, mm. in fact it would be interesting if he had to tackle this subject later down the line would clicks be just in, integrated into disc life rather than the kind of reset button being pressed it is but in, any, in any case it's like we that's that's starting here you know mm. um also it's only after this unless you count weird sisters as like obviously granny weatherox shows up having already showed up in equal rights mm. but she's quite a different character and equal rights feels more like in a uh, like a, a pilot episode for her as a character it than, really does than I mean, the beginning of the witch longer witch subseries so it's only if you think of it in that way, it's only after this that the characters begin to repeat. You know, like in in a major way, obviously, death has been present in all the books. But course, say yeah, yeah. next up we have Reaper Man, which is the second death book after Mort. Then after that, there's Witches Abroad, I think, which is the second longer witches book. Mm. Um, soon after that, like the, the Lords and Ladies and Men at Arms. So the whole thing gets a bit more settled. You know, once the university settles down, it's a little ironic this that this is the book that deal that criticizes and like ob uh, makes observations about the film industry, and from here on in, we get a lot of sequels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's very true. Um, although I'd argue in most cases, they sh he shows more uh, innovation and adventure in how he does sequels. Film. Oh, absolutely, definitely. <laughs> a lot of a lot of Hollywood and um, franchises, but but you're right. Actually, mm. you're right. Uh, yeah, so it's just it, it it's I hadn't thought of it like this before, but it really is a big turning point. Um, yeah, in, it really in, is in this world series overall. Like we said, Eric was very much a throwback to the, the very early the, the early books, and we'll never. I I don't think we get something that feels like as much of uh, you know a, a backward step and I'm not talking in sheer terms of quality I don't mean like from here on in it just gets better and better and better and better yeah just I mean, we'll, we'll the see structure that. like okay. yeah yeah, yeah. The, the structure and the, the tone of the world and the kind of things he uses it to explore mm. um, I do feel that when he started uh, writing the Discworld series it was very much he was coming from a place of he's read a lot of fancy novels enjoyed them a lot mm -hmm. and tried to do something similar but with his own like uh his own twist to it but here it's really coming into its own and it's really where he's making like doing his own books that have very little to do with other things that he's read it certainly informs it but 
it's 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 not his jumping off point. You know, his own work is his jumping off point, and he just makes something that's totally unique. Whereas, you know, the likes of the Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic, you do see elements of um, a lot. Of, I mean, the most obvious is the likes of Lord of the Rings, and um, I, I I sort of read a little bit of David Eddings in his work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, here it, it it's very much coming into his own. A lot of observational humor, which. I do think I do I'm not going to lie I do get quite nostalgic for the early books I do really like the fantasy romps through like mm-hmm. uh, the magic worlds I suppose um, Rincewind novels are the closest thing we get to throwbacks yeah but even stuff like Interesting Times and The Last Continent I mean we'll, we'll get to them and we'll see whether they, we feel they do it successfully but I feel like they're trying to make more of a point than Life Fantastic and Colour of Magic mm-hmm. and Eric and even Sorcery are you know, mm-hmm. uh, like with the kind of revolution and government and oppression in interesting times and with evolution um, in Last Continent, like they, they feel like they're about something more than just being a romp through a fantasy team park. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although you could say um, that Small Odds is quite nostalgic. My race partially in the fact that it takes place thousands of years before all the other ones, um, I believe, isn't it? Uh, or is it hundreds of years or it's that's a kind of thorny point I think uh, again I'm trying to figure out the, the discord timelines pretty quickly. <laughs> but I, I, I think in every other way though Small Gods is like really representative of this period of it because it's mm. all about belief and the power the kind of stories and narratives we build around ourselves and our culture and our society shape us and both inspire us but also kind of imprison and limit us like I, I find it, it was like it would be it would be so strange um, to see if like small gods had been detoured this world book or something, mm. and the rest of them went in the same order. Like you know, it's it's completely out of uh, not out of sync, but it's completely different than any of the early ones. Like I don't see it as a kind of. It's quite similar to this one. Yeah, but it, I mean, the early ones isn't mm. like the first like oh, whatever, yeah. five or six, yeah. and I don't see it in any way as um, to put it as like I I doubt he. He obviously he's really fast and uh, he's more of a gardener than an architect as Rose and I discussed before mm. and he's obviously very fast and loose with his timeline and doesn't really care so I don't think he even thought about the implications of like whether Small Gods was like a, a prequel to the rest of the series in terms of when it's set you know so mm. I, I wouldn't consider it like when I when I read it I, I don't associate it with any of the earlier ones in the way no, that like when, when, you, when you read separate. Eric in order you think Oh, this feels like it was written after the color of magic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it is a very separate book. Um, easily uh, the most exclusive in terms of the actual timeline because it just does feel like completely separate to it. Um, but no, I fully agree with your point that um, yeah, this is a very big turning point, and it's I I don't know. Should we probably try and rate it now at this stage? Or yeah, sure. Unless you have any other observations on it. We've... Uh, no, we we've talked about it a lot, and I have to say I do like this a lot. And I believe pyramids is our number one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll, I'll bring up the list here a second. Um, okay, so the list as it stands, and as we get deeper and deeper into the disc world, uh, I'm going to I'm I'm going to have to um like not read the whole list <laughs> by the time we get to yeah, the time we get the raising steam or something. The list as it stands that I'm running through forty books, but at the moment it stands at nine, so it's a lot more doable. So uh working up from the bottom, it's Eric, Colour of Magic, Sorcery, Equal Rights, Life Fantastic, Weird Sisters, Mort, Guards Guards and Pyramids. Well, it's a tricky one because I feel like this one does an 
awful lot in terms of like the message it has and um, you know it, it has great ambition but the ones near the top I think I enjoy reading more so it's kind of difficult to rate it in comparison to them yeah yeah it's um, like this book does so much really well and while a lot of the as we're talking about that general stuff about you, sto- the stories we tell and the kind of um, myths we tell and how they shape us is something that comes up a lot in the Discworld, particularly over the next five or ten books, mm-hmm. the whole hyper reality bit is something I feel like he never goes into the same depth as he does here because he does it so well here. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it definitely has its its um its downsides. Like if, I suppose if you're comparing, like Victor and Ginger aren't as quite as engaging protagonists as True. like even like Tepic or Vimes or you know Mort and. Isabel or, or the witches and while um, the theme and the focus is like very very strong the actual story itself is quite thin um, you think? Uh, well I think so because you know the, the messages of hyper reality and post modernity and like the fake or the you know hyper reality of fake uh, Hollywood or Hollywood in this case all very very strong aspects of the bo- uh, book when you get right down to it the story is just very little there you know, if you took out all the symbolism and themes, it would it wouldn't there wouldn't really be a lot. More yeah, I, I suppose I know what you mean. In the sense that there's a lot of just like normal life in Hollywood, like them making films, mm. and uh, but uh, you know, without it seemingly progressing, and then still, you know, then like it all hits the fan, and the the uh, things from the dungeon dimensions come out, mm. but. I, I feel like he does this good, really good job of building the atmosphere of that, like right from the start, with your man mm. Deccan dying and the chant, like you know something's gonna happen. Absolutely, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you kind of with like ginger yeah, sleep sleepwalking. Mm. You're it, it's it's sort of it simmers rather than you know. That's like actually that's very accurate. Yeah, yeah. It, it is yeah. definitely it's a, it's a much slower boil than the the rest of the books. I think, um, but I I do think there's something about, like. Like Victor and Ginger are, you know, are, are fun enough. Like, like I said, Victor's idea, like his kind of like quantum hyper laziness, mm-hmm. like is is a endearing thing. And I like, I sort of like Ginger being like the one who's really drinking the Hollywood Kool Aid the most. Yeah. Um, and that manifests itself in ways that are like both really annoying and endearing. Like you know how like she can be quite self important at that bit when she first meets Victor is like oh, I'm gonna be making a film with some kid with hay in his hair and it's like you've been doing this three weeks like stop yeah. <laughs> stop acting so kind of downtrodden and they, the book even laughs with that when she's like when you've been in this as long as I have <laughs> and, um, but also like her again her speech about like summing up the whole what Hollywood promises is to me one of the high points of the book absolutely and, and yeah. I really relate to her when it's, it's a wonderful bit I think a bit where Victor gets them sacked when they go off to go for lunch because it both sums up like both of their um, endearing and annoying traits as characters and that like it's kind of you're sort of with him that they're really taken for granted in the whole filmmaking process and treated like crap and he's, he says you know what fuck this let's go off let's have lunch they can't make this without us mm-hmm. um, so that's good but then the fact that that does get them sacked and she's really angry mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt found myself siding more with her and I was like yeah imagine okay, even though the joke is she's only actually been there for a few weeks, but still, it's like what she's wanted to do so badly. This guy breezes in, gets them sacked, and it's just like, oh, sorry, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you would be really pissed off. So, like, I think, like, they're not, exa- you know, they're certainly not flat characters by any means, um, 
but they're still they're less three dimensional than the other ones. You know, they, they have yeah, they're less. I think I think they just they're just less ambitious characters in terms of how they're developed. You know, he, yeah, yeah. I don't think Terry Pratchett wanted them to be any more developed mm-hmm. than he has developed them here. Yeah, which is fine. It works for this, and I can see can one hundred percent see why he doesn't visit them again. Because if he did, I think they'd have to be developed in such a way that might feel somewhat unnatural to their character to, in order to keep them interesting. Yeah, and that way I thought their their ending of the book feels like a bit of a cop out when they're kind of like sitting in a cafe, what will we do? And it's like, oh, it, it's okay because they're in love and you're never given any indication of what they're going to do. Particularly as like Ginger's whole thing is how I don't want to go back to milkmaiding. That's the mm-hmm. worst. You know, I, I want to find a, I want to find something to do with my life that I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and Victor obviously doesn't want to be a wizard, but now can't go back to his kind of indolent, like permanent student life either. Um, and just that, that it it does feel like, as you said, because they're just designed for this book, he feels comfortable with not really giving an, any indication where where they went at all. Mm. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I quite like that part aspect of the book, the yeah. fact that there's no closure given whatsoever, because you know, it just it it, it it's. I, I, can't, I don't really know how to explain it in that like uh, this is an idea that came into the world somewhat unnaturally and then it's taken out again equally as unnaturally and it's just kind of a case of it caused a lot of confusion and now people are left standing saying well now what it makes sense to me that they wouldn't really have a natural uh, conclusion because if they did I feel that was the cop out mm-hmm. you know like I don't think they should have like you know uh, oh well we'll go do this it's and it does. It doesn't come off to me as optimistic whatsoever. Like in the fact that they're left in this diner, yeah. they're just kind of, well, now what are we gonna do? And just that's kind of the joke. And because they're shallow, char- not shallow characters, but shallower characters, mm-hmm. I'm kind of okay just to leave them hanging. You know? Yeah, that's my personal view on it. But I, I see, I see what you mean. I mean, I'm not exactly losing any sleep over not finding mm-hmm. out what happened to them. But I do think it's it's a bit. It, it feels like a bit of a weakness like it definitely feels more perfunctory than like even like pyramids and we never see Tepic again after pyramids but pyramid ends with him you know going off adventuring and the whole book has been about the fact that he doesn't want to be mm. the king and he doesn't really feel at home and the jelly baby so even though that's really open-ended and we never see him again it feels perfectly you know mm. like in in keeping with his character and his his arc and so on he's a more well-developed character so it's 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 satisfying to see that he basically had his wishes fulfilled at the end of it mm-hmm. even if it is vague and inconclusive it's still it's optimistic yeah and, you know so i just thought that was a more satisfying conclusion in that sense i, I remember saying when we done more that the, like the what i what i thought was the prototypical pratchett protagonist is someone who like stands apart from a society but is fundamentally tied to it i said like death is ultimately that because he's mm. so tied to how life works but he he can never be part of it but you have people like you know like Vimes is this kind of cynical disruptor of the city's uh, and Morpork's upper classes and also it's, it's, it's criminal classes but it's fundamental to the running of the city by being you know a member of the watch mm. and like even one-off characters like, like Tepic is king of the Jelly Baby but he was raised outside of the Jelly Baby so he can't really be mm. part of it and uh Bruta or Bruta? I'm not sure how Bruta. I think. Uh, oh, Bruta, Bruta. Yeah, he like he's the you know the only one it, like he's the only one in um, Arm who actually believes in Arm. Mm. So he's kind of both like completely tied to the whole country and yet actually divided 
in a subtle but uh, significant way from everyone else in the country. And Victor and Ginger don't really seem to have that, you know, like in the sense of, I mean, they're obviously, they become like the uh, leading man and leading lady of Hollywood and they're the protagonist and they figure out certain stuff, but there's no, you know, like the part where Victor comes to Hollywood and just sort of wrangles his way into a job is fun to read, but I also feel like, what is it about him that made him do this and no one else has? You know, like mm. when he's, you know, when he sees the queue and he goes around and he gets the piece of paper and reels up sleeves, it's like, why? I, I feel like we haven't, nothing about him so far says why he would be the, you know, the, the, the one to spot the kind of gaps in Hollywood's logic and in its mm. systems and exploit them. I do think you're absolutely right. I think the closest you can get to an explanation on that is again it's down to the way he looks mm-hmm. you know he is I, I always read him even though he has a personality and he isn't exactly dumb because he does point out things to the likes of Dibbler that like make perfect sense to us and you're like why don't other people get it so he in, in some ways he is quite smart but he doesn't have complexity whatsoever like I think it, it is again just a case of there isn't really an answer to your question except that he's just supposed to be this vapid good looking man who serves the purpose of the lead character because mm-hmm. when you look at his entire arc what more does he do except for like rescue the girl and like save the day you know he doesn't really yeah. he doesn't really have any developments at all because there's no indication per se that he really changes by the end of the film or not the, fi- the film the, the moving <laughs> picture yeah. um, you know like he saves the day but there's nothing to say that he would or wouldn't do that at the start except for he's kind of lazy to say that he might not yeah so it, but in to be fair he's kind of reluctant to do a lot of the things that he does but you know he just still gets on with it for reasons you know it, it, it feels always vapid that in some way is both a failure and success success because it feeds into the story failure because you get the sense that it's lacking in depth which again feeds into the themes yeah and in the same way like uh, we were talking about Gaspo not really belonging in this book the fact that his end is kind of perfunctory where it's like he has this identity crisis of mm. is he a wolf or is he a dog and then it's like well it doesn't matter because he's not sentient anymore so he doesn't have to worry about it mm. um, and like so like Men at Arms and Fifth Elephant allowed that whole thing to be uh, teased out to much greater effect on his presence here so I suppose we're, we're kind of I mean there's we talked at length at the start like of all the really good things this book does and we're talk, focusing now on some more of the negatives I think to kind of basically try and explain why this is I assume isn't going to be like right at the top no I don't think it I don't think it tops pyramids by any means and um, I Guards Guards is a really excellent like uh, it's, it's a great romp mm-hmm. um Again, this is more ambitious, but I think I'd probably rate Guards Guards higher myself. What What do you think? Yeah, so I think Guards Guards is more success. Like like Moving Pictures feels a bit more ambitious, but Guards Guards is probably a bit more successful in what mm. it tries to do. You it know? also introduces Vimes, who um, I mean, this is fanboying a little bit, but you can't argue what a really rich tapestry of a character yeah. Vimes is. Whereas this book simply doesn't have that. Yeah, although it, this book does give, well, we didn't really discuss it, but it does give Dibbler his like uh, moment in the sun. That's <laughs> true, that is true. It, it isn't quite comparable to like one of the major characters of the disc-like volumes, but it is really fun to read about. Mm. The Dibbler tricky characters. bit here now is Mort. Now, this is the one that I'd be very, very, uh, I would almost want to keep Mort up there, but 
I feel like it's on par with Morton myself. Yeah, yeah the, the thing that, um, one of the things, like I, I love Morton, I remember when we'd done the episode on it, I said it's just like such a quantum leap beyond the first few books. It's, exactly. It's but the, the one thing that I always come back to when I'm trying to weigh it against the others and say like, well, you know, is it better, is it worse, is like how uh, perfunctory and unsatisfying the ending is the business of mm. like oh I talked to a god and sorted it out and like you have this what was this kind of really uh, you know pulse racing climax with the, the business with um, you know uh, the, the duke trying to kill Kelly and so on and Morton debt dueling just becomes sorted out really quickly and uh, unsatisfactory and yeah. certainly um, I'm, wh- I, while I was complaining about the open-endedness of how Victor and Ginger end up moving pictures climax is a lot more satisfying in terms of the, the giant woman <laughs> carrying the ape up the tower and them is... following it and then Ho- Hollywood uh, like the remaining bits of Hollywood magic airting themselves where like mm. Detritus starts singing uh, um, there may be trouble ahead and you know different bits like that yeah um um, I think I might somewhat disagree with you on more. I do get where you're coming from with the ending being somewhat satisfactory, but I would view that ending as more of an epilogue, you know, in that, like, it's just kind of a, it builds to the climax of the big um, sword fight with death or sword slash side fight. Uh, fight. And, uh, you know, then afterwards, it's kind of now we're just settling it back down. This is the aftermath. It is a little bit on. Um, Unsatisfactory. I will. I will grant you yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely think it's more than an epilogue because it sorts out the plot. Like the dilemma of the plot is about you know, uh, Mort's decision not to kill Kelly when she's meant to die, and the effects mm. this is having on reality. And like, can they find a way of saving her without dooming all of reality? And similarly with uh, Mort's own lifetimer like ending, mm. you know, and the whole conflict is. Death's duty being this, you know, uh, really horrible thing from our point of view of having to take all these people away. Mort's struggling with it as a human, but the kind of struggle being, well, like, you know, Mort's thinking with his heart, but there's no, like, you can't save everyone, there's no satisfying mm-hmm. way of doing it. So, and it just pushes past all that by, like, oh, it's okay, in this case, they could save Mort. You know, it, it was sorted out. Like, there's, like, there's no attempt to say why that's, like, why Death was able to make an exception in this case, mm-hmm. you know. Um and why he like can't in a lot of others like like we'll get to Reaper Man next time but Reaper Man you have the whole bit of him having to give up a bit of his lifetimer as Bill Dor to save the little girl and then um uh what's the old lady's name that he works for oh I'm sorry I can't remember yeah Um, but she gives up a bit of hers to save him and there's a real sense of stakes and consequences for things like that whereas more talks about that for the whole book and talks about it really well and then bypasses completely at the end mm. just for the sake of a you know a happy ending um this is this would be too long a conversation to have now i think personally i'd somewhat dis- disagree with you because i find it very neat the way that it's all put together because i always read it as more as death story um i won't go into it now but i i personally i'd probably rank moving pictures below more at least anyway that would be my thing uh how would you feel about it See, I, I'd probably put it just above. Mm. Um, so this is... See, this yeah, is the thing. It, it'd be a difficult from... decision to make because I do feel the ambition of moving pictures does slightly outrank uh, the uh, the narrative, the great storytelling and world-building of Mort. But, you know, if you were to rank it in that sense, I, feel, I think Mort is, like, leaps and bounds ahead. So 
and it, it did ba- for me it would basically boil down which do you prefer reading and I'm always going to say Mort in that sense so Mort certainly has more heart there's mm. more moving bits in Mort um, ironically yeah I, and I must admit there is a part of me whenever it comes to like these decisions where I'll tend to weigh uh, against the ones that are the first of a sub-series like Death or the Witches because I'll mm. think oh well did, it gets he, better yeah it gets better mm. later um uh, yeah, I think I think for for I suppose for heart and emotion alone. I mean uh, that ending of Mort is gonna like is a sticking point with me. And it, when it comes to like other stuff, arguing about whether it should go ahead of it, that like that's always going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I, I see it as like much more of a, a fumble than you do. But I think in this case, I mean it's it's fine margins, and I'm I'm willing to put moving pictures below Mort mm-hmm. um, on the on the basis of kind of. Uh, Mort's having more heart and being more compelling uh, mm. overall just about moving pictures having like um, I suppose more well realised ideas albeit some ideas that you know are kind of out of place mm. so yeah moving pictures are new number four um, sitting in between Mort and Weird Sisters so that's that I think that's that's probably like the, the, the biggest debate we've had about where to place something in this mm. Um it's because we disagreed on one book. <laughs> yeah, it's only going to get harder going forward. Oh no! Yeah, so like you know, some of the absolute gold coming up and trying to uh, trying to place them. But um, speaking of absolute gold coming up next time, it's Reaper Man. <laughs> so join us again for that. I've been Colm. Who have you been? Um, Steve. There we go, Steve. Hill. Yes, you have. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs>